Welcome everyone to part four of our Nolan Countdown, the latest mini-series from Some Like It Scott. On this week's episode, we'll be deciding whether Chris Nolan really did call his shot all the way back in his first film following because we're diving deep on the first entry in Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, that is Batman Begins. Before we get to that, however, with me today, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey, and our Countdown series guest, Jay Habib. Guys, how are you doing today? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that there's too much to say anymore to, to this question, as long as we're all still in quarantine. I feel like just confirming that we are alive is probably about uh, the, the extent of answering the question, how are you nowadays? But yeah, no, we're, we're I'm doing good. Um, again, I don't want, I was just using the royal we there. That's why I said we, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm doing good. Um, who knows when this episode will air? given that it's almost a, a guarantee now that Tenet is going to be delayed. I think Top Gun was like the last other big summer movie to not be delayed. And then this week it got delayed. So the, the writing is on the wall, but whenever you hear this, it's, it's going to be great. Yeah. Jay, how are you doing? I'm good too, guys. And yeah, not to beat that dead horse, but hopefully this airs soon and we all have a good time with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm more curious, I'll probably end up cutting this part out of the podcast, so I'm almost curious, like, when, like, if it's, if it hasn't officially been delayed yet, and it's, like, May, whatever the first day of our podcast is supposed to air, do I, do I just, like, assume it's going to get delayed and not post this episode, or do I go ahead and put, not this episode, but post the first episode? Like, I don't even, I don't know what to do. It's, like, a conundrum. Post the first episode as a teaser, you know, be like, and the rest coming next year. <laughs> yeah. Here's the movie that series no. take years off between episodes, right? Here's here's the movie that you'll be least interested in following, and that will whet your appetite for all of the future episodes. For the other nine, yeah. Yeah, that you actually care about. Either way, we'll see uh, when, when this gets aired. Just in case I do cut this out, I'm going to cut in now and start over. Leave um, it in. Leave it in. Ah, uh, whatever. Okay, fine. We'll leave it in. We'll leave it in, as I'll mark down a time code just in case I do change my mind. Uh, yeah, no, I think that it's it's definitely hard times right now when it comes to the quarantine. I think we're in like week four or something like that. I don't know at this point. But still somehow, like it, it, I guess it, it shows when we're recording this, Tenet hasn't been delayed yet. Uh, when about like you were saying, Scott, just about every other movie has been delayed at this point, with the exception of Soul. I think Soul is the only other movie that's still coming out before Tenet uh, right now, at least in in theaters. And I extremely, I'm extremely skeptical about whether or not either of those films, Soul or Tenet, will hit their current release dates. But we'll leave that discussion for uh, some like it, Scott podcast. When and if that does happen, and like I already mentioned, today's topic of discussion is going to be Batman Begins. Directed, of course, by Chris Nolan and co-written by Nolan and David S. Goyer, the latter of whom was best known at the time for the Blade trilogy, which he wrote all three of and directed the last movie. But Batman Begins stars Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne slash Batman and tells Nolan's unique take on Batman's origins all the way from training with the League of Shadows and Ra's al Ghul in Bhutan to his early days operating in Gotham City investigating Falcone's corruption, Scarecrow's drug shipments, and unearthing something altogether more sinister in the process. With a truly all-star supporting cast of Michael Caine as the Wayne's butler, Alfred, Liam Neeson as Bruce's mentor in Bhutan, Henry Ducard, Gary Oldman as the incorruptible Gotham City police officer, Jim Gordon, Killian Murphy as Dr. Jonathan Crane slash Scarecrow, Katie Holmes as Bruce's childhood friend, romantic interest, and Gotham City District Attorney, Rachel Dawes, Morgan Freeman as Wayne Enterprises R&D Specialist, Lucius Fox, 
and more, including Rutger Hauer, Ken Watanabe, and Tom Wilkinson. Nolan has an incredibly talented cast to make use of in this film, uh, but a long list of characters who require careful treatment. So Jay, we'll start with you first. What were your expectations for this initial offering from Chris Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, and does his direction and the cast performance in this film live up to those expectations? Sure. I think this had this had been the movie in the trilogy that I it had been the longest since I'd seen. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, it was like a, a very good movie. Um, nothing that was going to like, you know, blow me away, but you know, something that was a, a very good movie. And uh, I think it actually aged really well. Um, I ended up enjoying it a lot more than I expected to. The cast was great. Bale, I'm, I'm sure we'll dive into, you know, the, the specifics, but again, like, you know, Bale was great. I don't, again, I don't know if it's because I haven't, seen a good Batman movie in a while, or, you know, if, if Bale was just better than I remembered, but I had a, a really fun time with this one. Yeah, it turns out that uh, Christian Bale, very good actor. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with that uh, that sentiment. And yeah, you know, I, I said this about Insomnia too, but this was a movie that I watched, you know, for the first time years ago. I actually think, thinking back to it, I think I watched The Dark Knight before I even watched this. Um, but I watched it, you know, a few years ago, uh, several years ago, and thought, yeah, this is a good movie, but this is my least favorite in the trilogy. And then last year, it was on Netflix, and I kind of thought, I'll watch this. It's been years. It's probably better than I remember. And yeah, it was better than I remember. It, it was really, really good. And so, kind of like Insomnia, right? It hasn't been that long. It was it was actually just last summer when I watched Batman uh, Begins. So, I kind of knew what to expect, but that didn't mean the movie did not deliver, because um, it did. It's, it's an absolutely great film, and one of the best superhero origin films, if not the best. Um, I think it's it's especially difficult when you have a hero like Batman where everyone knows his origin story, right? Like everyone knows about his parents dying and, and everything that that leads to. And yet every single like element of that origin story is satisfying in the film, whether it's, you know, the reveal of the Batmobile or the that signal being revealed, how that came about, the back, him discovering the back cave, uh, every, every part of it just like it works. It, it, it makes me think about like in our last countdown series, you know, we talked about Solo and and one of the big parts of his story was how he got his name and the, the, the reveal after however many movies it was of how Han Solo got his name was just so lame um, and, and such a dud that it, it makes me appreciate something like this more, right? Where you, you are waiting for these types of things. You, you, you are, you know, waiting to see what, how he discovers the Batcave and all of these familiar elements of the story. And they, they hit you exactly like they're supposed to. So I think that's one of the great um, achievements of this movie. I also think, and I mean, I'll be a broken record about this uh, with all of the Batman films. What elevates these above, you know, a, a lot of other superhero movies, most of the superhero movies, is the writing. I think that... Um, like we've seen that with the recent DCEU efforts with with Justice League and Suicide Squad and stuff like that. When you try to make a really dark superhero movie, the writing is incredibly important because if you don't have good writing, it's going to come off like Justice League or like, you know, like Suicide Squad, like these movies, which are frankly terrible. And it's because to to mash something as campy as a superhero story with this really dark, gritty feel Um you have to to make people believe it. And those movies just don't. They're just drenched with cheese and they don't make you feel the um, environment around the characters. They're, they're just not effective. And this these movies, yes, they have their fair share of cheesy lines. I, I think that's fair to say. But 
you know, David Goyer, Christopher Nolan, they know where to employ these lines for, for sort of maximum impact to where you're like, not really thinking of not rolling your eyes, not thinking about how cornball they are as much as you are being like, that was an epic moment. You know, like I'm, I'm Batman when he says I'm Batman for the first time. Yeah, of course it's, it's kind of cheesy. It's, it's a little corny. Everyone makes fun of Bale's Batman voice or whatever, but it's such a satisfying moment in the film. And I think that just speaks to the strength of the filmmaking here. So yeah, I can't imagine people wanting much more from, from this movie when it was released. There are a couple couple little issues I have. I, th I think, you know, th this movie does have the villain problem, which we'll get to. But um, I think that overall, this is, you know, one of one of the best superhero origin films. And um, hopefully no Batman movie will ever attempt to tell the origin story again, because we all know the story at this point, And I don't think you're going to do much better than Nolan did here. Yeah. I think for me, this movie. I, I think back when I saw this, because I, I did see, I did see this before seeing The Dark Knight. I remember uh, I got this from Blockbuster Video. May May that company rest in peace. Um, and and there's still it. one. There's still one in existence. Yeah, and is it is there still one in Alaska? Is that where it's at now? No, I think it's in Oregon. Maybe I don't Interesting. know. Yeah, we might need to get fact checked on that. And I imagine that uh, if it is still in existence, it might not be after the coronavirus. Uh, has its final say. Anyway, so I, I remember going back to was it two thousand five when this movie came out. I don't think I don't think I saw it in theaters. I didn't see the Dark Knight in theaters, but I think I saw this on. In, you got this from Blockbuster in two thousand six or some summer, and I remember I can't remember if I'd seen any like all of the Batman movies with like um, Michael Keaton and of course um, George Clooney and Val Kilmer, but I remember having seen some of those and. Some of those are considered good. Some of those are considered less less than good, to say the least. But then to have a movie like this come out and it be grittier, it be darker than those films, it really felt like this was something different. I mean, you had the Spider-Man movies in terms of superhero movies. had I think all three of them had come out already, or if not, two of them had come out. And you, know, you had some sort of expectations for lighthearted superhero films that Spider-Man gave you, Spider-Man 2 especially, particularly well-received. And and this movie goes for something altogether darker, especially coming from a director like Chris Nolan, who had done two movies, well, three movies, but two movies that were well-known in terms of Memento, obviously a very dark psychological uh, crime thriller, and Insomnia, which is you know not the most innovative, but it was, as we talked about last week, in terms of it, its narrative style, like Memento was, but still a fairly dark and mature uh, piece of piece of work from Nolan, much more so than you'd expect from, you know, well, Sam Raimi has roots in horror, but nothing like that when you got in the Spider-Man films. And so to get something like Batman Begins, I'm sure this felt like, you know, I, I can't remember exactly because I didn't, wasn't old enough really, but can't, this had to have been a godsend for all like huge Batman fans at the times. And, and once all I had seen all the three Dark Knight trilogy for the first time, I have looked back and Scott can, and I think Jay too probably can hold me accountable to this, that I have consistently said that this film is probably the second best in the trilogy. I've, I've always thought that this one is better than The Dark Knight Rises. We'll see if that holds true this time. But I think when I rewatch this film, it absolutely follows through. Even 15 years later, after we've gotten Batman versus Superman, especially that, that tells a very similar brief origin story to uh, showing the alleyway where his parents get shot, showing the discovery of the Batcave and falling down a well, you know, that film, it just doesn't do it right. It just doesn't do it right at all. And uh, even though it feels like we were exhausted from the that introduction and that origin, especially after Batman versus Superman and, and other projects here and there that have tried to tell the origin story a little bit, 
you go back to this one, you're just like, man, they just get it right. Everything about this film just feels right to your point that you were saying, Scott. And I just, I couldn't have been more in love with this film. It's not a perfect film. I do have some quibbles as well. I think there are some, some plot points that don't quite land as, as much as, uh, as I would have liked them to, but to watch this film and then just kind of sit back in my chair uh, after I watched it and think, wow, like, could you imagine if this had kicked off the DCEU? Or could you imagine if, if Nolan got to do his trilogy and then, you know, I, I know he's not interested in doing that kind of stuff in terms of universe building on a larger scale like the MCU, but imagine if he could set up something like this and, and you, you could actually build off of this rather than building off of something like Man of Steel or Batman versus Superman, which Goyer, by the way, wrote and obviously completely lost his writing touch from this film going to those films. Uh, but yeah, this is just a magical movie. I, you know, since watching this, last, I think this t- this time last week, I've like started playing uh, Batman Arkham Asylum again on the PlayStation 4. It just, this kind of movie just reignites your love for the character of Batman that the other two movies, if I remember correctly, and will validate this, I think carry through pretty nicely. And, and part of that has to do with the direction of Chris Nolan, his vision for this film. And Christian Bale as Batman is absolutely awesome. And so I think we want to actually go there next and, and talk about Christian Bale's performance as Batman. Jay, what did you think of this performance? I mean, we've had people like Ben Affleck, Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, George Clooney, all these people. I'm, I'm forgetting the original Batman from like the movie from the 60s. I think, Adam West. Adam West, yeah. So we've had a bunch of different actors play this character. We've, of course, had Kevin Conroy voice him in animated shows, among other people. But where does this rank for you in terms of a Batman performance? And overall, just what did you think of, of Christian Bale's uh, acting here? You know, I'll, I'll hold off on my final... Batman rankings until we're done with the trilogy. I just, I do want to see how sure. this plays out. But in terms of, you know, how I remembered it and how it's shaping up, um, again, like better than I remember. It's it's not that I thought Bale's Batman was bad or anything. Uh, it was more just the kind of thing that I, I felt like my my lasting impression from at least this movie too was like that he played like a great Batman and a so-so Bruce Wayne. And after this viewing, it was like a great Batman and honestly like a great Bruce Wayne. Um, one of the things that you know I thought was really good about Ben Affleck was that he played Bruce and Batman well, and I'm not gonna I'm, I'm gonna steer away from that because I thought the movies were bad, but I thought he was good. But we're, we're we're not we're not going down that rabbit hole right now. Release the Snyder cut, but I <laughs> thought that Bale really, you know, held up. And again, you know, like you said, if this had been the Batman that had kicked off, you know, the DCEU, like I could only imagine where we'd be at right now. And I think, you know, what one thing that really adds to his performance um, is the score. I mean, Hans Zimmer does such a good job. I mean, I, I've i listened to, you know, uh, not necessarily this movie score, but just his, like, you know, Batman uh, scores from the other movies, like, so many times. It, it, it still holds up really well. Dare I even say better than Junkie XLs? Like, you know, I thought this was not only did Bale do really well, but the score, like, you know, really set the tone. And, you know, it, it was a great Batman. Yeah, I, I think what he does really well is is to take elements from the the Batman Batmen who came before him and to blend them together and I think a successful package because yeah, Jay's right there are, you know, two sides to any performance. There's the bat uh, you know as his character, there's the Batman side and there's the Bruce Wayne side and I think that someone like Michael Keaton was not a traditional Bruce Wayne because you know he wasn't a heartthrob, he wasn't he didn't have like the suave look um, that you maybe you expected of like this playboy billionaire. Uh, he was a little more cold. He was a little more standoffish as as Bruce Wayne. Whereas uh, they, they had the suave look and 
they looked at like what you wanted a Bruce Wayne to look like. But they didn't bring the sort of gravitas to their role as Batman as, you know, that that um, that Michael Keaton brought. And obviously some of that, again, has to do with the writing because uh, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin are, were, are such goofy films that there wasn't much that, that Clooney and Kilmer could do. But right to have the right look. And I think that, like I said, I think that Bale takes sort of the grittiness of um, of Keaton's Batman and, and makes that work. I mean, you know, the Batman voice, it is what it is, right? Like it's, it's not, it's not great. Like, it, you know, I, I understand why people do make fun of it, but I think he's kind of given a thankless task because he, you know, obviously this movie is, is they're going for a darker, they're going for a grittier Batman. Um, and he has to alter his voice in some way. And the only thing that makes sense, right, is to go lower. And that's just how it sounds when he's, Speaks lower. So, I mean, it's it's a little jarring at first, but I think you get past it. But then as far as Bruce Wayne, I think he sort of blends the, like, suaveness that he obviously has that in his look. But he also has, like, the the, the standoffishness a little bit of, uh, of, of Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne. I think he, particularly, you know, that scene where he, he gets his party guests to leave, right? Uh, you know, and he, he insults them all. He tells them, he pretends to be drunk, basically, and and tells them all off. You know, he doesn't have to work very hard because that's kind of the the Bruce Wayne that he's uh, the, the Bruce Wayne image that people have of him. It seems like he's he's always going to be living in the the shadow of his father, who is sort of this great man that everyone in, in Gotham revered. And um, you know, he, he's not the same person as his father, and I think that's reflected in Bale's performance. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we'll have even more to say as we watch the performance develop over the three movies. Um, but he's he's off to a great start, and I think any any qualms that anyone would have had about the casting of Batman here were probably quickly put aside because I think he he pretty much nails it. Yeah, I'm not sure if there were any qualms, like if that existed at the time or not. But regardless, yeah, I don't know either. Yeah, but just regardless, I mean, this is this guy is, is Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. I mean, he has the element of suave businessman look. He looks like he could like. Like Patrick Bateman is essentially just a psychotic Bruce Wayne is, is is basically what he is in terms of a businessman just gone completely wrong. But he's also played Laurie from Little Women back in the nineties. He's played uh, well. He played the Machinist like right before this. The guy I can't remember the guy the character's name like Trevor Resnick maybe in in the Machinist right before this and had that emaciated look. He just has so much range, Christian Bale, and 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 I think he's able to show that range in this film because I think one of the parts that of Batman Begins that really works for me and sets this film apart from, I think, some of the growth that we're going to see in the other two movies, although I'll, I'll hold my opinion on that because it's been a while since I've seen The Dark Knight Rises in particular. But I think that what you see is is you see a lot of growth from Bruce Wayne as a character outside of of the Batsuit, you know, outside of Batman. You, you talk about when you have those early scenes where he's back in Gotham before he goes uh, out to Bhutan and tries to find himself when he comes back from, from college at Princeton or whatever, and, and he's going to kill Joe Chill or whatever in the in the courthouse and you see the immaturity that exists in there and it's very believable i think bale's performance completely sells you on this character being at that stage at that time and then you see a lot of growth you don't get that many scenes you know in the mountains in asia and bhutan and, and and also in the prison but you you see that and you see the growth that happens there so as sort of an intermediary step and then when he gets back to gotham you know for when you know the, the entire second half of the movie basically 
you see that he continues to grow and you don't always see like the very critical development points happen on screen, but you see these phases of the character that I think Christian Bale plays expertly uh, as Bruce Wayne. I think he's a great Bruce Wayne for that. And I think he complements that with being the Batman that maybe, you know, we kind of all wanted calling back to the Michael Keaton Batman that you were talking about, Scott, because he has a hard edge to him. Like what he, what he's doing between hunting down Falcone and also trying to take down Scarecrow and then obviously everything that happens in the kind of the final act of the film is very hard edge. It's not for the faint of heart. What he's doing is, is grizzled. Like the, you know, I, the, one of the scenes that sticks out in my mind is when he encounters Scarecrow for the first time, he gets, you know, gassed and he gets set on fire by Scarecrow runs up, like jumps out the window and he, you see him just like clatter down the, you know, yeah. the, basically the fire escape on fire. And that, that leaves a pretty stark image in your mind, I think. And, and the fact that, Bale is able to do that kind of stunt work, which I, I assume, I don't actually don't know if it wasn't, maybe, maybe he had a stunt double for that, but this film is riddled with, um, you know, live stunts, not using, you know, CG, uh, CGI to, to do a lot of the stunt work, which is why I feel like one of the problems that I had with insomnia was that it was really difficult to watch a lot of the action scenes, but because you have a younger actor when in the form of Christian Bale rather than Al Pacino, uh, and maybe also because he's wearing, you know, you're wearing the bat suit. It's a little bit easier to disguise who it is, whether it's a stunt double, whether it's Christian Bale. But all those things combined, it allows, I think, Nolan and, and Fister, who's doing the cinematography here, which I think is fantastic cinematography. I think the whole feel of Gotham is just great, especially. Although I, I guess for the most part, you're really only seeing one particular part of Gotham, which is the area around Arkham Asylum. I think it's, is it, I forget what the actual name of the area is that you see the most of uh, in the city. Uh, it's like the slums of the city, more or less. The Narrows. The Narrows, yeah, that's right. Thanks, Jay. Uh, yeah, so like the Narrows, I think it's a great production design. I think they're able to shoot that really effectively. But I think that because, whether it's because of the suit, whether it's because Bale is doing a lot more stunts than Pacino was able to do in Insomnia, I think the problem that I had there with the action just being edited to all hell feels like it's mostly eliminated in this film for that reason. And I, again, I think I, I give credit to Bale there in terms of being able to perform those stunts and being willing to perform those stunts. And overall, I think he's a great balance of the Bruce Wayne and Batman. And I'll leave aside any conversation about Ben Affleck as well, but he's a, he's a great one. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll split the uprights with you on that one in that I thought a lot of the action actually, you know, was a step up from Insomnia. Um, I, I think the training scenes in Nandapar Bat, I don't even know if they actually called it that now that I'm thinking about it. They, they don't. They don't, right? Okay, yeah. Um, I thought those were super fun, especially, you know, the scene on the ice. But I think about some of the scenes, like the first appearance of Batman, like in the suit when he shows up at the docks. Yeah. And again, I don't know if it's, you know, intentionally cut this way so that you don't get the first real look at him until he, you know, yanks Falcone out of the car to say I'm Batman. Right. But that fight scene was cut and edited in such a way that like you, you really couldn't see anything at all. Like, I, I'm not even sure, like, and this might be a slight exaggeration, that I, I could see one, like, clean, clear punch being thrown. It was just a lot of, you know, different angles of the same, like him just kind of in the middle of, you know, the action, not really being able to tell what's going on. Which, again, you know, you know, did set up the reveal for later. But I think even later on, you know, I didn't, with the exception of maybe the scene that you talked about where, you know, he jumps out of the balcony uh, after being set on fire and gassed, I, I didn't really think the Batman fight scenes were as good as, you know, what Bruce was training with the league of shadows. I mean, I think for me, the best action scenes in all these movies are, are pretty much always the Batmobile scenes. I mean, they're just, they just slap so hard. The one, the one in this movie is just an absolute banger. So 
Yeah, I mean, I think there probably is a step up from from Insomnia in terms of the way the action scenes are shot. But, you know, you'd expect that he's working with the bigger budget here. He's got more expectations. And, um, you know, it, it's Batman. You want big scale action scenes. So I think he he delivered on the promise of, you know, what you what you expect to see in at, with the action scenes in a Batman film. Yeah, $150 million uh, as a budget for this one certainly takes you a lot further in terms of your production design. Yeah. Even with Insomnia being a big budget, I think it was only $50 million, so triple your budget for this one, and goes a lot further. But a lot, and but to your point around the Batmobile, things like the Batmobile, even the Batsuit, the production, the, what I was talking about in terms of the set design and production of Gotham, I think a lot of that, you need a lot of budget to put all that together. Uh, and But he made good use of that budget, which I think is obviously the really one of the really important parts uh, of all that. With that being said, I, I do want to, you know, Jay, you referenced Hans Zimmer's score and I referenced Wally Fester's cinematography. I do want to give a brief moment, Scott, to for you to talk any more about either of those things. And Jay, if you want to say anything about the cinematography as well. I would just echo what Jay said about the score. I mean, the Dark Knight score is in my top three all-time movie scores. I still listen to it all the time. Um, you know, what, what we can talk about that more when we get to the Dark Knight. But I think that Zimmer... You know, one of his other more famous scores for a Nolan film is, of course, Inception. And I'm not as hot on that one uh, as maybe some people are, as maybe most people are, because I think he he can get a little full of himself and overbearing at times. And I think that Inception maybe is an example of that. But I think here he shows just enough restraint um, to make it work. Um, but he still has, you know, those epic sort of blustery moments. But I think that they're employed in the in the right places of, of, of in, in this movie. And, uh, you know, they fit the overall feel really well. And so, yeah, I, I can't praise his work in this whole trilogy enough. Jay looks like he's about to have an aneurysm. No, I'm going to say something here so Jay can, like, stop having an aneurysm. Uh, while, <laughs> while we you talk guys are crazy. Well, no, I, no I, I mean, I love Inception. I, I'm not, I'm unabashed. I, I love pretty much everything about Inception. We'll talk about it in a few episodes. But one of the things that I do really appreciate about Hans Zimmer is that I think that he just nails all of the touches of the score for the Dark Knight trilogy so well, I, I will say that Junkie XL's theme for Wonder Woman might be one of the most positive, like might be the thing that I like the most in terms of like superhero soundtrack themes, you know, in, in the DC universe. But in terms of Batman themes, things around that, I think Hans Zimmer takes the cake for sure, uh, especially with the score overall outside of one particular track. I, I think that he absolutely nails everything here in, the, in Batman Begins. And it just feels right. Like if you think of Batman, if I asked you to think about what the theme for Batman would sound like, subconsciously or otherwise, like you would you would describe what Hans Zimmer does here because it just no. Works. You would think of na 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 na. I wouldn't. No, I was going to go with the animated series, but that's okay. Yeah. Jay, have you calmed down enough to to make a comment? I've, now? I've, I've I've calmed down enough. We'll we'll touch on Hans Zimmer's score uh, for Inception later. But you guys are crazy if you don't like that. Um, I'm curious, Scott. What was the one song you thought he didn't land in this one? What didn't land in this one? You mentioned no, there was I, one, I think one you, track you didn't like. I think you misheard him. Yeah. No, I, I I was just saying my favorite piece of of like like a character theme from any DC movie is the Wonder Woman theme that Junkie XL has in Batman versus Superman and then also uh, Wonder Woman as well. But uh, no, in terms of this, I think, it, I think he nails, uh, Hans Zimmer nails it across the board. Okay. So yeah. as long as we're all on the same page this time. 
I mean, we don't have to all be on the same page this time either. But anyway, we're going to move past this. <laughs> we're going to skip right along and talk about the supporting cast. I think that, you know, you probably fell asleep while I was reading all the names at the beginning that I listed off. But there's a lot of them. There's Gary Oldman, who actually was originally in talks to play Ra's al Ghul. Actually, he was originally ca- going to be cast as Ra's al Ghul because at the time he was better known for playing villains than he was playing good guys. And instead, I think it was, I think it was that Chris Connor. I think it was, I can't remember. It was, it was the dad from a uh, uh, beautiful day in the neighborhood. Whoever the dad, oh, Chris Cooper. Yeah. Chris Cooper. Front, and Mr. Yeah. Lawrence from little women. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Chris Cooper was originally supposed to play Jim Gordon had like, I guess fell out of the cast for personal reasons. I think he just wanted to spend more time with his family. And then Nolan shifts over Gary Oldman from this Ra's al Ghul character to Jim Gordon. And I think that was one of the more interesting bits of, of news that I, as I was reading up just a little bit of background, more background on this film that I saw. But yeah, so Gary Oldman plays Jim Gordon, Michael Caine plays Alfred. I won't go through the whole list again, but Jay, we'll start with you first. If you had to pick one or at most two people in the supporting cast to praise, who would you go to first? If I have to say one, it's gotta be Michael Caine. Um, he was so funny, uh, so witty and like sarcastic as Alfred. Yeah. Um, you know, I've since again, even since my last viewing of this movie, which was probably a few years ago, I've read a lot more Batman. It's, it's probably my favorite title to read, um, or you know, Batman titles are my favorite to read. And like, you know, he just he captures like the the wit, like the almost snark of Alfred, uh, while still, of course, you know, having the like heart, you know, for Bruce so well. So, Mike Michael Caine gets mine if it's only one. Scott, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll go with. I mean, everyone. Every, I'll say everyone is so perfectly chosen. Like there, there's not a bad piece of casting here, and I do think it's worth talking about Katie Holmes because so many people saw her as the outlier, and 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 so much so that I think maybe even partially, if not wholly, influenced Nolan to change the actress between this movie and, and Dark Knight. And I don't get it. Like I think she's fine, but. Uh, I mean, it's Gary Oldman. Like, I think he's so great at, as Jim Gordon. Like, I, I, it especially stood out to me. I don't know what it was watching, uh, watching the movie this time, but I was like, he's just perfect for this role. And I think, like, he, even though he's he played villains maybe leading up to this, like, I think even the villains that he played, like, you think about a movie like Air Force One, for example, where he played the villain, he has like this sort of like professorial like demeanor that he brings even to villains, right? He he's not like the the goofy, like mustache twirling villain that you might get in some other action movies. And I think that that same quality lends itself really well to his performance as, as Jim Gordon here, as the guy who is kind of the most clear headed about this whole Batman thing. And, and, you know, really, and really while everyone else is overreacting and saying this guy's a menace or whatever, he can kind of look at it and say, well, you know, what, what is this guy really after? I, I want to at least talk to this guy and see, see what his MO is, see, see what he's all about. And then, you know, make a decision for myself about is this guy hurting or helping us? Um, I, I think he's just perfectly chosen. And he, I mean, he has the look, too. He has the look perfectly uh, of what I would expect from a Jim Gordon. And, uh, yeah, if, if I have to pick one, it's uh, it's him. But I, I do want to know what y'all think about Katie Holmes, just because it is such a controversial point about this movie. Yeah, I I had forgotten how controversial this role is. I mean, obviously, it's it's very famous that the role changes between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, at least the person playing it, uh, switching to Maggie Gyllenhaal 
in the dark night. And I'm curious to read more up on this when we do it, when I do prepare for that podcast, I actually understand if there's any consensus reason as to why that happened or whether Katie Holmes stepped away or, or whether it was Nolan's decision to, to recast the role. I mean, obviously sometimes it can be somewhere in the middle as well. Uh, who, who really knows the the truth there. But in terms of the performance of the movie, I guess I didn't have that much of a problem with her performance, Scott. What I will say is I think the character is like the weakest by far in the film. I think yeah, probably, probably my biggest problem in the film is that I just don't get the relationship between Bruce and, and Rachel in, in this film. I think that it goes, it, it becomes a little bit more nuanced and I think it's just a little bit better done in The Dark Knight. Again, we'll revisit it. We'll see if that holds up. But that's my thought right now. And and I could understand, I guess, maybe a little bit of ire directed at the character. I don't think that any of that is Katie Holmes's fault, though. It, it just feels like this character got the short end of the stick among the 10 characters that are all equally relevant in the supporting cast, it feels like, between Scarecrow and Falcone and Lucius Fox and Alfred and Gary, Old, you know, Gary Oldman's Jim Gordon. Because like, even him, like Gordon, doesn't have that major of a role. He doesn't get that much screen time because so much of the story is about Bruce's origins across the board. For me, it just felt like there was, I didn't really understand the relationship between the two of them. And a lot of, um, a lot of the negativity that I have around that is just more geared towards that dynamic and that character more than it is the performance. She does have one of the, you know, some of the more clunky lines, maybe. Like, I mean, you know, the whole it's not who you are underneath or whatever. It's what you do that defines you. I mean, it's not the greatest line, right? Obviously I think it, it's clever the way that it comes back around at the end of the movie with, you know, her, Batman sort of revealing himself as Bruce to her through that line. But uh, yeah, I, I find it hard to blame the performance too much for maybe problems with Rachel and her relationship with Bruce, but Jay. I think I like a Scott Shelton, uh, Scott Shelton's point in that, yeah, I, I guess her character does kind of get the short end of the stick. I'm I'm definitely not very high on Katie Holmes's performance in this movie, but I think in large part it just is the way the character's written. And I, I think what lends credence to that is I'm not sure anyone else really would have saved that. At least no one immediately comes to mind. Um, you know, if the character was played more or less the same way. Look, like to be fair, like I, I think that you can play it better. Like I think you can give more energy to the role, you can make her feel, you know, more relatable, more human. I mean, she's just like kind of a bummer in this film. She's like always the one who feels like she has to be the mature one in the room because she doesn't trust Bruce. She thinks that he's a party boy. She doesn't really have much respect for him at all. In fact, like it doesn't really feel like she respects him in any way until the very end of the film when he does to the to your point, Scott, like at that scene, reveal his identity to her and she stops treating him like a child. And that's where I think that I don't really understand the relationship the two of them have in the film because she's not exactly treating Bruce that well. And yet Christian Bale still kind of pines for her attention uh, in a way. And I mean, it's a child. He's known her since childhood. Like they, they've had this, he's had feelings for her probably since childhood, you know, sure. he goes off into to Asia or wherever and, and doesn't see her for a long time. And, and then he comes back. And I think it's natural that, you know, those feelings resurface regardless of what happens. And, you know, he probably thinks because honestly, like, right. Like the, he's not a party boy like that. That's not him. Like the, when Bruce Wayne is his most comfortable, it, it's not being that party boy, but it is just the kind of the image that he has to, to put on to be yeah. Bruce Wayne. And I think that's where a lot of the turmoil is, is he feels like he is the person that Rachel wants him to be. He just can't really show her that because of the demands that being Bruce Wayne and being Batman put on him. 
Yeah, I to I totally I do t I do agree with that. It's just one of those things where like at some point it doesn't matter how badly you want someone to see who you are for uh, who you are for who you really are and it, it just doesn't like at some point I just feel like you have to kind of be frustrated and give up cuz you don't ever really get that sense of frustration from him even though he's being treated like a child by her and it, it, like I said it, it's just one that I think misses a little bit but we're talking about a movie that I ultimately am like really high on it's not that big of a detriment it's just relative to everything else that's going on for me this is a weaker part of the movie Jay anything else you want to add to that Nope, I'll uh, just echo that sentiment in that, you know, again, this is a movie I also really, really like, and I don't want to, you know, make it sound like I don't. Um, that might just be, you know, one of the points that, you know, if I had to harp on something, it'll be that. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. And I just think for a moment to, to touch on a couple other characters really, really briefly here, I, I agree that probably the two most memorable performances in the supporting cast are probably Michael Caine's Alfred. I mean, my, um, Michael Goh, I believe it was, who was the Alfred in the original Batman, not, I shouldn't say original, but the, the Batman quadrilogy that Tim Burton and I can't remember the other director's name had. Joel uh, Schumacher. Yeah, Joel Schumacher. That's who it was. It's Sorry. It's one, so it's one of those things where like, I think that he was a good Alfred there, but again, now maybe just because of the nature that this was like the first Batman film that I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Michael Caine just will always feel like my Alfred. You know, it doesn't like, as much as I also uh, thought Jeremy Irons was a, a different take on, on Alfred being a little, again, a little bit more hard edged than the Batman versus Superman justice league, uh, duo of movies, man, he just, everything about Michael Caine's Alfred just feels like it's right. Like just other, so many, like so many other parts of this film. I, I love that performance. I, I also like Gary Oldman. We'll obviously see a lot more from him over the next film or two in the dark Knight trilogy and get to live with that character even more. Killian Murphy. I mean, to think that, that he's in this film and think about all the stuff that he's gone on to do since then, it's kind of weird that this is kind of his like rise to fame movie. Like people recognize him because of this film. Obviously he went on to do things like Peaky Blinders and he was in Dunkirk. We'll talk about him later on as well and a few other movies. But uh, he, I think he does a pretty good job as Scarecrow as a relative unknown when he's cast in this film. Uh, Liam Neeson gets to play a very Liam Neeson-like character. He's probably like, uh, you, Scott, you were shrugging on the screen here. That, that probably feels about right. It's not a bad performance by him, but uh, we'll get to the villain. It's, it's not a great character. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we'll get to the villain problem that you were alluding to much earlier. And then the last person I'm talking about, of course, in just a second is is Morgan Freeman. I mean, Lucius Fox, another character we'll get to see more of in, in future Dark Knight movies. But it's such a pleasure to see Morgan Freeman, I think, in this role because he just kind of gets to come onto the set for a couple days, probably be this like clever R&D guy who gets to outfit Batman. He's essentially Q from James Bond for Batman. And I think he, he masters it pretty well as kind of lovable grandpa who's giving Batman all of his big toys. Yeah, he's just like the easygoing like guy or whatever that you really like that, that are your your perception of Morgan Freeman as a person like is. So I think, again, he's perfectly chosen for the role because he just has that sort of relaxing, easygoing presence to him. Yeah, I think we have something for that, Bruce. Yeah. Jay, any, any last thoughts on the cast before we move on? No, I think uh, I think you covered it pretty well. I am you know curious to when we get around to a talk about the villain problem, because I actually thought Liam Neeson as Rachel Ghoul was you know, fine, but maybe it was the way it was written. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to that. Yeah. Spoilers out of the bag there that uh, Liam Neeson's Ra's al Ghul. I tried to hide it in the intro, but whatever. Um, anyway, so moving on to sort of plots and, and themes, I think obviously one of the things that it's impossible to not think about when you revisit this film is, is how this film tells the origin story. I mean, that is the entire film, obviously, but I'm talking like the very initial origins between showing uh, the murder of his parents and then all the stuff that happens in the Bhutan prison and uh, also in, in the mountains with the League of Shadows. 
I think that it's one of those times where Chris Nolan just had to, you know, put a little flavor of Chris Nolan into it. Cause in the earlier third or first half of the movie, what you get is actually this kind of interstitch narrative of three different timelines, not unlike following that are weaved together out of order uh, to create the story that you ultimately see. You get, you know, what's happening when Bruce is a kid, you get what's happening with Bruce in Bhutan and you get happening what's happening with Bruce in the middle when, you know, his parents are dead. He hasn't gone to Bhutan yet, uh, but he's back from college in Gotham around the trial of Joe Chill for the first time, guys. So do you think Nolan effectively was able to add his little flavor of narrative uh, storytelling to this film in, in a way that works? And also kind of secondary to that, or also maybe just also primary to that is, does the origin story that is told here before we get to the second half of the film work? I think it works, right? The the interweaving of the timelines. I'm not so sure I would have, like, I, I guess now that you pointed out and, you know, even compared to following, it does sound like, you know, a very Nolan-esque move to, you know, take three timelines and kind of run with them. Um, certainly, you know, done way better than back and following. I, you know, I mean, part of it is, you know, again, the way the, the film is shot and the characters is clearly very, three very different ages. Um, you know, it's, I guess it's easier to follow, but I wouldn't necessarily have thought of this as, you know, him kind of like, you know, I guess putting his flair on it. Maybe that's just not fair of me, but it, it works nonetheless, right? Um, and, you know, the origin story for me, again, works well for the reasons you described earlier, which is, you know, we see him, you know, in very different stages of, you know, becoming Batman. Again, you know, the he hasn't gone to Bhutan yet and he's still, you know, very immature, brash, angry, and, you know, like, you know, following... I guess the path of vengeance, if you want to call it, instead of justice, which, you know, we see him eventually shift to, not necessarily for the clearest reason either, but, you know, I, I think the the origin story and, you know, how it does kind of, you know, break down and actually tell a story works well. I think the origin story works really well, like I said. I'm not so sure about the timelines. I think this is one of the more issue, the issues that I have more with the movie. Again, I love the movie, so it's not that big of an issue, but for the same reason that I, I took issue with following, I just don't really know what exactly the purpose of of structuring really the first third or so of the movie like this is. I think it it does become a little bit confusing, especially because we eventually do just pick up with one of the timelines, right? And we just kind of ride that out for the rest of the movie. And I just think it would have been more effective to tell a linear story where you start maybe with, with Bruce in Bhutan uh, and have some flashbacks to, um, to to when he's a kid. Like, there's nothing wrong with having flashbacks. But then just riding that timeline all the way through that he gets back, he, you know, Joe Chill, all of that stuff happened. Then he goes after Falcone. Like, I, I think that would have just made so much more sense because I don't, again, I don't understand the purpose. I don't think there's really any sort of, like, symmetry between the moments that he's really juxtaposing here or anything that sometimes you get in movies with, like, competing timelines. They... They put certain moments up next to each other to kind of, you know, make a point. Um, but I didn't really get that that sense here. But, you know, fortunately, unlike following where he sort of does this the whole movie, I think he does kind of just abandon that after the first 40 minutes or so. And, and, and you know, just, just tell a linear story after that. But I don't know. It struck me more as like he just couldn't help himself, right? He's got to do some kind of tricky thing in the storytelling uh, where here, here I don't think it was really necessary. Yeah, it felt very like Nolan just couldn't help himself. It didn't bother me at all. Sometimes it's kind of hard to explain why he did it other than just the fact that he could. Maybe it built some sort of tension around 
understanding who Bruce is when you're getting primarily the story that is in Bhutan with the League of Shadows. But I will say, Scott, it sounds like the narrative effectively confused you because Joe Chill actually happens before he goes uh, to Bhutan and, and returns right, yeah. from from training with the League of Shadows. So there you go, Nolan. Chris, you probably should just make it make it a linear storyline from now on and stop confusing no i i i was i was aware of that i i definitely missed but i think i jumbled myself up when i was talking about where everything happened but either way i mean then you start the movie with that right and and you just keep going my 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 point i think is that it just would have worked better as a linear story he didn't need to put this zest on it yeah it's just like making making your viewer work a little bit harder than they need to for not really any any payoff again didn't bother me too much because I like the bag of tricks that Nolan often often pursues, but I just don't think he necessarily reaped any reward for it this time, other than just the fact that he can say he did it and it worked. Because I don't I don't think it takes away too much from the film. But going to that, like with the kind of the origin story behind this, I mean, two of the things that Scott, or I guess one of the things Scott that you were alluding to earlier, and and another one of the things that I want to talk about that I think is related to that is Batman as a character and what he has to sort of uh, deploy as uh, Bruce Wayne has to deploy as Batman. One of those things is the bat suit and everything that he's comes equipped with with Lucius. And the, one, the other thing is the Batmobile, the Tumbler, uh, whatever you want to call it, the, the military-grade vehicle that uh, Wayne Enterprises has in storage. Guys, what did you think of the bat suit? Does it look right? I mean, part of the being Batman is that you have to look the part. Uh, and then second, Scott, I think I know the answer to this question for you already. What did you guys think of the Batmobile? So we kind of talked about this when we talked about the Batman test footage when I think when we reviewed Birds of Prey. I'm not one of these people who like really cares too much about like the design of of superhero suits that much. Like it looks like a Batman suit to me. So I'll let you, since y'all are more attuned to sort of the nuances of, of those types of things, I'll, I'll let y'all talk in more detail maybe about the Bat suit. But yeah, the Batmobile is great. I love the sort of, uh, I, I mean, it, it is as the police officers describe it, right? The, it's a black tank. Uh, like that's a per, that's a perfect description of it because that's exactly what it is. It's 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 this like uh, battering ram, basically. That um, you know you know he can do he can do so much more in this than you can do in just like a normal tricked out sports car. Even I mean you know we see like tricked out sports cars in in James Bond movies and stuff like that, but this is something wholly different. I think that that's how I've always envisioned the Batmobile as. Um, you know, a weapon as much as it is a vehicle, right? And I think you really get the sense of that here, like the uh, going down into the gunner section or whatever, like is really cool. Um, and, you know, when he's jumping across, when he when he's driving the Batmobile across the tops of buildings with Rachel, I mean, that's just an exciting scene and he just rips up everything in his path. Uh, it's exactly that sort of like grimy, like uh, bulky type of vehicle that I want from the Batmobile. So it really works for me always. Yeah. Jay, what do you think? Well, I am someone uh, who cares a lot about superhero suits uh, and have a lot of strong opinions on a lot of them. Uh, this is actually one though, that uh, Scott Harvey, I'll sound like you. And that's just, you know, he's, he's dressed like a bat. I, I dig it. You know, that's, uh, that's about all I've got, you know, like it, it looks okay, but it, it, it's not the kind of thing that, I don't know. I, I, I rate, I rank very highly or low uh, in terms of, you know, I, even if I compare it to like other bat suits, it's not at the top for me, but it's not at the bottom. It, it, it's just fine. Um, and the Batmobile, you know, I, I really want to like this one for some reason. It just doesn't do it for me. And, 
And I know, yeah, I'm sorry, but I, and, and I think honestly, maybe what it is, is just, I, that scene that you're talking about where he's literally driving across rooftops, like I can't, I had like I, suspension of disbelief and whatever, but I have such a hard time believing that like people could see this guy as like a hero after, you know, he did that. First of all, like, I, like, I know he's Batman or whatever, but I don't know how he was able to do that so successfully the first time just, you know, going across rooftops. And then I think my inner monologue, you know, uh, during that scene was very much what Michael Caine's Alfred said to him after, you know, like, what are you doing? You know, like, is this about like the thrill of the chase? Like, this is insane. So, you know, the, the, the militarized Batmobile, I, I don't necessarily even have a problem with the way it looks, but certainly the way it was used. It, it, and it, it was a little much for me. Yeah, for me, I think the suit works really well. I, I, I do want to ask you guys one more question about the suit, though, before uh, I give my full thoughts. And, and that is coming off that I watched The Incredibles recently. And so I have to ask the Edna Mode question of why is this guy wearing a cape? What's the point of wearing a cape? I guess it's supposed to help him fly, but he doesn't fly. I don't really know. He he did that one that one scene where the water mains are you know starting to yeah, go, uh, go true, off yeah. and he glides and he does it again later. But I I actually do agree. I think the cape doesn't really add much. Uh, Feels like a very big cape too. I feel like right? it, not to get into the cartoons too much, but I feel like Batman Beyond does it without a cape, and it's not a problem. Yeah, and particularly right because Batman I think is such a grounded hero, and particularly in in this setting like where this is basically a crime film more than anything, more than it is even like a superhero film. Um, I, I think it would make sense to sort of cut back on some of the like superhero trappings like a cape, for example, and just be like, this is a dude in a bat suit. This isn't like some sort of genetically enhanced, you know, person like Captain America or something like that. Yeah, maybe. I, I think that one of the things that I, I wonder if you, if you teleport back 15 years, if fans would have been upset though, if Batman didn't have his typical cape, uh, given that these films had not established themselves and 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 Nolan had necessarily established himself as someone who you can respect as a as a Batman director and Christian Bale as a Batman actor. I, w I wonder if that went into their minds at all if they were when they were developing the character. Regardless, I think the bat suit it, like it works. I don't know if it's necessarily a standout. Uh, if you had to talk about the characteristics of Batman from these films, you'd be talking about the voice before you'd be talking about uh, the bat suit. I didn't really, I guess weigh in on this earlier. i don't I don't mind it at all, actually. I think it it makes a lot of sense. I can't say that I like I love it, but I certainly have don't have any problems with it either. So for me, I just kind of roll my eyes whenever someone comments about the voice in a negative way. I'm just like, whatever. I, I don't really I don't really get why you have a problem with it, but cool. As for the Batmobile, again, it's a really cool. The Tumblr is a really cool concept. I don't know that they necessarily make the most of it in this first film. I think they'll they'll do more with it in future films, which is fine. Uh, but for me, again, probably one of the one of the less memorable parts of the film when there's so much more uh, other things to love even more. I think that, but that's just a compliment to the film overall. And moving on from that, I think that one of the last points that I want to touch on here before we do get to sort of the finale of the film is the relationship with Rachel. We brought it up briefly uh, earlier and I talked about kind of my thoughts on it when we were talking about Katie Holmes and I wonder what you guys think a little bit more. I mean, Scott, you got to kind of give your thoughts on my perspective of thinking that the character is a little bit uh, half-baked. I didn't fully understand the relationship. But, Jay, do you want to add any more of your thoughts? I know you did also mention briefly earlier. No, I mean, not, not much else to add, you know, other than thinking, you know, maybe she drew the short end of the straw. You know, maybe Katie Holmes could have brought it a little more. 
and you know when you do that research, uh, I, I will be curious to hear you know whether it was a recasting by Christopher Nolan or whether she stepped away or something else. I will add that you know uh, just to skip the the you know most climactic scenes of the film. Her final scene with Bruce is probably one of my least favorite, if not my least favorite, uh, moments in the film. So you know I you know from not really understanding the dynamic all the way you know through the movie and you know seeing how it kind of wraps up it all just I'm not a huge fan of it yeah one of the things I was watching this with a bunch of friends actually last last weekend and one of the things that I commented on when I was watching that final scene between uh, Christian Bale and, and Katie Holmes is why is she wearing a silk shirt like what I mean it's just like one of the strangest things in the scene is that she's wearing this like looks like this like $300 silk shirt on like the She's a DA, okay? They make all the big bucks, assistant right? DA, <laughs> assistant DA no less. Um and she's wearing this like multi hundred dollars looking silk shirt and the rubble of Wayne Manor. I was just like I don't understand this character at all. Yeah, I mean it doesn't it didn't bother me too much like I said I think Katie Holmes is fine. I would have been fine seeing her continue as Rachel. I mean, I think Maggie Gyllenhaal is good too, but I just did. I don't see the need for a shift. And I think that I mean, I, the relationship more or less worked for me in 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 terms of an origin movie. Like, I think obviously it's going to develop as the movies go on, as you would expect with any sort of romantic relationship in these types of movies. But I like that it's kind of like the reverse Spider-Man situation of like. In Spider-Man, like MJ really likes the person who who Peter is, but he you know, has to be Spider-Man and that's what kind of drives them apart. Whereas here, like she kind of like, doesn't like the person who Bruce Wayne is probably likes the person of Batman more and what he stands for more, but the, the two things are kind of at odd, odds with each other. So I, I do like sort of that juxtaposition, especially because the Spider-Man movie had come out just a, a couple of years before this and um, was probably fresh in people's mind. And I mean, and the second one too uh, was Oh four. Um, so, so, so I like that. And I mean, I, I, I think it, it works well enough for me. I, I, I do think that it's kind of silly, the whole element of thinking, thinking forward to the dark night that Rachel's apparently just dates all of her bosses. Right. Cause she's, she's dating whoever the, the Finch, I think, isn't that his name? The DA here. And then she moves on to Harvey Dent in the second movie. And it's like, can't you just like have a professional relationship with someone? Yeah. I, that that's an interesting point. I didn't, I didn't even think about that in terms of Finch. And- it's, her, yeah, her and Finch is not really a major part of this movie. I, I, certainly not as much as her and Harvey is in, in The Dark Knight, but it is kind of like a silly, like, why are you treating your female character like this type of thing? Like, can't she, she, she can exist in this workspace and not have a romantic relationship with her immediate superior. Jamie, thoughts on that? No. Uh, no, not really. Um, that That is something that hadn't really occurred to me. And, you know, now I'm even less high on this character than maybe I was two minutes ago. So thank you, Scott Harvey. Add gasoline to the fire. Let's burn it I down. I do what I can. Yeah. And burn it down just like Wayne Manor, because I think the, uh, what a segue there that I got out of that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so the finale of this film is Scott, you, you talked a little bit about the scene earlier. I think when you talked about when he, when uh, Christian Bale sends away all of his guests, because he realized that there's about to be trouble uh, at his, at his house because uh, Ra's al Ghul, who we now know is played by, Liam Neeson, not the fake-out Ra's al Ghul that Ken Watanabe was playing earlier in the film, uh, did survive the sort of culmination of everything with the League of Shadows earlier on uh, during his origin story and uh, still has this grand mission to destroy Gotham because it's unsavable. He's this very, uh, I guess, archetypal, one-dimensional one villain that 
you see in a lot of superhero films. I mean, I don't, I don't want to single out this one as being the, the one and only one that screws up its villain because far from it. But Liam Neeson does get this role. I think that it's not really surprising giving sort of the name weight that Liam Neeson had that he wouldn't reappear later on in the movie uh, after kind of being ousted in the first 30 to 45 minutes, or at least ousted from the screen. He doesn't, it doesn't, we don't think that he dies at the end of that sequence, but he does reappear as the big bad of this movie. Jay, what did you think of Liam Neeson's uh, character and, and this particular portrayal of Ra's al Ghul? And I'm not necessarily talking about the acting here, but just more about who this character is and, and does it work in the context of this film? I, I think it worked well for me. I think, you know, uh, now that I've, and again, I, I will keep tying back to the fact that I just read a lot of Batman um, and, you know, you, you obviously want to see those things get brought to the screen. I, I still think, you know, even though it's, you know, you don't dive too much into the story of Ra's al Ghul, certainly none of the, you know, Lazarus Pit immortality type stuff. But, you know, I, I like this grounded version of him that we get. I, I like Liam Neeson as like a mentor to, you know, a young, still learning Bruce Wayne. Like, I, I think he works that dynamic really well. You know, I, I think even after all this time, like, you know, he... You know, he he has like this, you know, like these pedi- this pedigree of movies, right? Where he, you know, he he's trained Obi Wan, he's trained Batman, he's played Zeus. Like, you know, he he's always like, you know, this, these like larger than life type guys. Uh, I don't know if that's the right expression, but just you know, very important people. Uh, and the guy, I, I exactly like, I, and I think this one holds up still really, really well. I definitely rolled my eyes uh, when he was talking with Bruce, you know. Uh, during the fire when they're uh you know heating up by the fire after he sank him in the water and he talks about his great love who was wait for it taken from him and i was like oh no like i had to stop the movie to go back and see if he had actually been in taken before this was uh released he was not it was three years later so Mm -hmm. just a weird accident that you know he takes a beat and then goes taken from me i'm like oh dear that this is what happened after uh (laughs) in a different timeline but uh, yeah, just to, you know, circle back. He, uh, I actually, you know, didn't have a problem with the portrayal. I didn't even mind that he disappeared, you know, for the middle half of the movie. You know, to me, like, again, like, Roz is not really a villain that you're, like, constantly at odds with. Like, you know, the fact that he just kind of comes back in the end with a grand entrance of sorts, like, it, it, it worked. I didn't have a problem with it. I'm not as hot on this character. I don't think it's the worst villain, certainly, that we've seen in, in superhero movies. I think he's just mid-tier honestly for me and and maybe that's what you expect from an origin movie right like I, I feel like it's rare that we see the best villain come out in an origin movie just because they're just discovering their powers right like it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense to throw thanos at 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 batman in in his first movie um i, I think there's it's always like the the initial boss right that you have to be in. and then maybe in the second movie you kind of you kind of level up and you maybe maybe you you hit the big boss but He's not the worst. I just like his motivations are just kind of whatever. It's like, oh, Gotham sucks because there's so much crime. I'm like, yeah, great. Tell us something we don't know, man. Um, and, and so, like, I, I, that being that as a motivation just didn't do much for me. I actually think Scarecrow is kind of a cool villain. I love the I love the the visuals uh, when he attacks Batman with the gas uh, and like the hallucinogenic visual visuals or whatever that that hit Batman in that scene are are really cool. And, and I don't know exactly what the technique uh, which is used there is, but it, it makes it look really, it, it, it is really disorienting, which I think yeah, is effective. I think but computer generated animation, I think is what that's oh, called. Oh, okay. <laughs> it must be a new thing. Um, but I think that, um, yeah, as for Ra's al Ghul, he, he didn't do much for me. I think that 
actually thinking back to since I brought it up, thinking back to Spider Man. Sp- Spider Man does have a really good villain in its origin story with with Defoe's Green Goblin, but that might be the exception. I don't know, but um, here it's just kind of you know your usual blah sort of mastermind. I'm gonna destroy the city, whatever. Yeah, I, I think Ra's al Ghul is such an interesting character if you if you look at him from the comics and what they have to work with. And in many ways, like he's in he's an arch villain. Like he is this sort of like I don't want to draw too many comparisons from comic to comic, but like if you had a character like Ra's al Ghul uh, equivalent in the MCU, you wouldn't be far off calling him Thanos because in the comics he has like so much uh, more going on in terms of how evil and powerful he is, and he is sort of in its own right kind of reduced to yes he is the big bad of batman begins ultimately but it he's not like on the screen enough to be the big bad he you're not as a like you're not afraid enough of raza ghoul to really get that and and you never really will be able to in this origin story of a film that you're talking about go ahead and, and because there are all these other sort of secondary villains as well right there's carmine falcone we yeah. that we didn't really mention that played by Tom Wilkinson, and there's the Scarecrow, right? It's kind of like, who are we supposed to see as the big bad here? And then he just shows up, and then Roz just shows up at the end, and you're like, oh, okay, I guess this is the person, but... Yeah, and Batman movies seem to have this consistent plague of feeling like it needs to include a lot of villains. I mean, we we can talk about that more when we talk about the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises and whether people get more comfortable with it or or how the villains work in those films, but Batman Begins, I think, certainly suffers from kind of trying to spread itself so thin i mean movies from before right you think about you know bat was it is it batman returns or no batman and robin with like mr freeze and poison ivy there's just like so many villains in that movie you're just like jesus like decide what you like what you actually want to deal with here uh i don't think it, go, it goes nearly as far that direction in this film because i think that they do hit uh really interesting notes with each one of the different villains i mean you think about falcone as this really grounded sort of mafia boss sort of criminal then you have scarecrow who seems like this really like like psychological, like psychological. Mad, he's your mad villain. scientist villain. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then you have Raz Al who's your more typical, like let's destroy, like take over the world with the League of Shadows kind of feel to it. So you get a little villain diversity there in terms of what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, you don't necessarily get them fully fleshed out to the extent that you'd feel like you really lived with that villain for the movie and you feel good about the character development that happens. They, they all end up being a little bit more one dimensional than you like with maybe the exception of Falcone. Honestly, you get a little bit more out of that character because he's so involved with the origins of Batman and everything. But I do hear what you're saying there. And ultimately, Ra's al Ghul is, um, I think calling him a mid-tier villain feels about right. I think Liam Neeson plays him well. But there's there's really not too much you can do when you're there to train Batman for the first 30 minutes and you're back to destroy Gotham in the last 30 minutes. There's just really not much more you can do with that role to take it further. And, and that is maybe one of the things this movie uh, doesn't quite get right. I mean, o- only if you take the Nolan approach now, if you just add an extra hour and make the movie super long, maybe you get more out of it. Uh, but we'll talk more about <laughs> making this movie yeah. long in a future date. Since we're talking about villains, can we talk about the uh, the shameless setup for the Dark Knight that happens at the end of the movie? Oh, I liked it. Sure, you can you can talk about it now if you want to. No, no, no. I, I don't. I don't think it's bad. It is just kind of funny. I think just to see something so like egregious, maybe in a Christopher Nolan movie, like set, setting up the sequel like in, in such a blatant way, it's fine because we know that the movie that that came out of it was really freaking good, but. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think maybe with a different director, it might have been viewed as a little, little clunky. 
hey, this is the guy who put a bat like put a Batman sign on his door and following. So I don't think. Okay, yeah, but we we know that he didn't know at this point. Well, no, he didn't know, but he knows what he wanted. Probably. I mean, I mean that again. That was his yeah. apartment. Maybe he's just a big fan of Batman. You you take with the what you get uh, when you have it on the door there. But talking about this, like I I liked that. I mean, yeah, sure, it's you have a little bit of arrogance probably if you're Christopher Nolan because you've made good films and like you think this film's going to be pretty good too. And it's just kind of showing your hand that like, Hey, look, like, I don't know if this movie is going to be successful enough to warrant a sequel, but I want to do a sequel and this is what I want to do it with. So why not just throw it in there? I mean, only he came a little bit before his time. Cause if he waits like five years and they're putting that in the mid credit scene, so you don't have to worry about the last bit of the movie. Yeah, that's true. And, and I mean, you know, maybe from that perspective, he is just kind of making a play for a sequel and being like, Look, if you let me let me come back for a sequel, I don't know how this movie's going to do, but you let me come back for a sequel, and you're going to get the most famous supervillain of all time, probably <laughs> with, with the Joker. So uh, yeah. maybe from that perspective, it's actually a really smart move. By him. Yeah, one of the more bizarre things that I, I don't really want to spend any airtime with it next or two weeks from now when we talk about uh, when we talk about the Dark Knight, talking about it. But I thought that I'll have to double check, but I felt like the Dark Knight happened like a year or two after Batman begins. Like I didn't think it was like an immediate sequel. So I'll be curious if it actually is one way or the other, or if the Joker is just this villain. He's like tracking for a really long period of time between the film. He was planning that bank robbery for like a year. I think is what, what that means is that he was just really <laughs> building up to that bank robbery in, in the yeah. dark night. Why so serious? I don't know what more really there is here, except to give a verdict guys. What was your favorite scene from Batman begins? Jay, we'll go with you first. My favorite scene was Roz and Bruce, you know, fighting on the ice, talking, training, uh, right down to, you know, you've, uh, you know, compromised your footing for a kill strike and then drops him in the water. Um, and, you know, again, even that whole dialogue, you know, like, you know, pressing uh, Bruce's buttons about, you know, his father not acting and, you know, the whole, you know, the whole speech on, you know, the will to act. Uh, I, I had a lot more fun with that than, Again, even then, I remembered, you know, not to beat this dead horse too, but you know, this this movie was just more fun than I remembered, and you know, that was one of the scenes that landed well with me. Yeah, Scott, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think my favorite moments are are the touchstone moments of the Batman origin story that we get to see here, and two that I really like are Bruce standing in the cave as as an adult, right, sort of facing his fear and this trauma, this past experience that he he faced when he was a kid. Uh, as the bats swirl around him and uh, Hans Zimmer's score kind of swells up at this point and it, it's re- it works really well. And then the other one, which we haven't really mentioned, is the reveal of the bat signal and how that was created with with Falcone strapped to this spotlight and, like, and, and it, it, uh, it up there in the sky as, as Gordon and the other police officers show up. I think that's that's awesome, too. Yeah, that that is a good one. I think for me, it's it's probably a, a bit of a lighter moment just because I I could choose all of the scenes with Batman because I think so much of that is just awesome. But if you think if you think about the scene when he buys the hotel and he just starts swimming with the models and like the fountain pool, I think that's just such a such a lighthearted, funny note. And I think again speaks to the range, one end of the range that you see Bruce, you see Christian Bale playing as Bruce Wayne in this film, and it's just all part of all part of the show. I just think Christian Bale is really is the perfect dynamic Batman uh, from that perspective. And that scene is kind of emblematic of that. Yeah, one last thing I will say before we put a score on it is just a shout out that something that I never would have noticed when I originally watched this film because uh, this actor wasn't famous until many years after this film, but Joffrey Baratheon's Jack Gleason is in this film. So I don't actually know if if you've ever even seen any episodes from Game of Thrones, but I know that you've read some of the Game of Thrones books, but Joffrey Baratheon is in this film as as one of the little kids 
that is an admirer of Batman. I think it's the guy who actually comes out on the porch and says, uh, talk, talks to Batman when he's kind of just standing there. And uh, he also makes an appearance later on the film. And it was the most bizarre thing to see this kid in this film. Yeah, I, obviously I didn't know that. I, but also worth noting, I think Mark Boone, of course, showing up as the, the undercover cop here. And he played the... Uh, the innkeeper and in, uh, in Memento. So he's one of sort of the Nolan regulars. I think it's nice to see him pop up. Undercover cop. Isn't he just the dirty cop? Yeah. Dirty cop. Yeah. 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 It's glass, but yeah. 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 Glass. That's his name. Flass. Flass. Glass. Flass. Doesn't matter. Uh, he's dead to me. Anyway. So Jay, let's put a score on it. What are you going to give Batman begins? 9.6. This, this movie really, it, it moved up for me. Um, and I like I, I will I will shamelessly stick to my guns here. This this was such a good movie, and I think it's it's moved up in my like all time list. You know, a, a few spots. I I had a lot of fun with it. I I hope to God the next Batman movie is is you know as good as this one. Yeah, me too. Correct, I me, if I, hope. correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you give Memento only a nine point five? You're correct. I I had a really hard time thinking about this, uh, and yeah, I I had to just edge it out. I'm running out of room at the top here, and we, we still have a couple of my favorite movies to get to. But you've been running out of the room at the top for a while, Jay. Don't worry, Scott. No, what are you going to get? Not even my my next two are going to be great high scores, and I'm going to have absolutely no shame giving them. I'm about to take a Polaroid of Jay and write he's not to be trusted on it. But uh, <laughs> eight eight point nine. This is a, a great superhero origin movie, and uh, yeah, one of the best out there. And I'll be interested to see how it where it stands in the trilogy for me after we watch Rises. Yeah, um, about at the same level as you, Scott. Nine point oh from this one. This movie, like I talked about, expectations. My expectations are pretty high. It's my second favorite of this trilogy, which is saying a lot for one of the best trilogies ever made, probably. Uh, and it lived up to it absolutely on this rewatch, even though I hadn't seen it in a few years. Uh, it, it lives up to it in nearly every way uh, that I that I was expecting it to, and so I was very pleased to see that. All right, I think that should just about do it for part four of the Nolan Countdown. Please follow our podcast on Twitter at, at MediaPlugPods. Subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes, and don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash MediaPlugPods. Our Patreon has a bunch of different reward tiers for you to check out, and you can receive various rewards depending on how much you're willing or able to donate, even if it's only at the $1 level. That's, again, www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Check it out for yourself and pick the tier that's right for you. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, however, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. And with that, we really appreciate all of you for listening to Part 4 of our brand new Nolan Countdown miniseries. Well, not so brand new anymore, I suppose. We are four episodes deep now. Don't forget to check out all our other podcasts in the Some Like It Scott feed, including our latest episode of Some Like It Scott, as well as Champ's Lunch. And we'll be back next week with part five of the Nolan Countdown, when the three of us will be uh, reviewing Nolan's interlude between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. Oh, just a just a not well-known film called The Prestige, also starring Christian Bale, and this time alongside... Uh, Hugh Jackman. So get ready for that. But until then, for Scott Harvey and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.